We're in chapter 15. So turn there. If you have Bibles, great. If you have, don't have one, there's some in the back. You can go back there and grab one. We're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 15. Just a, just a, a jump start into the context. It's been, again, two weeks. Seems like, like Ricky said, longer, but it's only been two weeks. We're in chapter 15. David, we know, is the king of Israel. is the second king. David is in Jerusalem. And the way I want to introdu- introduce this text, chapter 15, I want to remind everyone that David is still God's anointed. Anointed is the word Christ. He is, he is the Christ of God. He, he has been chosen by God to be king of Israel. Of course, he's not the capital T, the anointed one. That's Jesus. He's not the final king. That's Jesus, the king of kings. But even with David's flaws, sins, and imperfections, David is still God's anointed. I believe it's important to remember that as we continue our study because just as God continues to, to pour out his grace, to pour out his mercy upon David, just as God continues to keep his covenantal promise he made with David, so does he do with us, his children. We, the children of God, through the substitutionary atonement of Christ, his, his bloodshed for the new covenant, belong to him for eternity, even with all our flaws, sins, and imperfections. We may not have committed the same sins as David, but we cling to the same grace as David, trusting in the same God as David. David is looking forward to the new covenant while God's people are relying upon the death of Jesus, his bloodshed, his redemptive work on the cross some 2,000 years ago. God has not given up on David. Listen, God has not given up on David. Not because David did not deserve to be given up on. He did. God did not give up on David because of God's eternal sovereign grace. Same with us. God is working for your good and his glory because of Jesus, not because of you. Children of God should rest in the fact that God will never be against you. He will never not treat you as a child. If you've been born again of his spirit, you've repented and believed on Jesus, he will always be your loving father, not because of what you've done, but well, because Jesus has done. I mean, David broke lots of laws, I mean, including idolatry, adultery, and murder. And as we continue this story, we're going to see that David was forgiven, but yes, the, he is bearing consequences for his sins, but he's been forgiven. The prophet Nathan, spoke, the spokesman of God, told David in chapter 12, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house. That's what we're seeing. You remember David committed adultery, he, 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 he lied, he cheated, he stole. And we find with Bathsheba, God took his son, seven days old. David now is on a downward spiral. Now his son Absalom murdered his half-brother Amnon. Absalom and Tamar, brothers and sisters, same mom, same dad. Absalom, Tamar. Amnon is the half-brother, same dad, which is David, different mother, but they're half, his half-brother, his half-sister, and Amnon raped Tamar, if you remember. And then Absalom fled. After he killed Amnon, he took his sister in, and he fled, and he went to Jerusalem. No, excuse me, Geshur. Amnon's dead, Absalom murders his half-brother, flees to Geshur, he's in Geshur with his 
That's where his mom's from, with his grandfather and his family. If you remember that, for a couple of years. But now Absalom is back in Jerusalem. And the narrator describes Absalom for us in chapter 14, verse 25, as a man who was praised above all the men of Israel. He is a handsome guy, without blemish, a head of hair, remember? Three pounds of hair every year, he would cut it. If you don't believe how handsome and tall and, and, and wonderful he is, just ask him. That's the kind of guy he is. He's full of himself. And at first, when Absalom was brought back to Jerusalem, if you remember, from his exile in Geshur, he was kept out of the presence of his father, the king, David. And if you remember, Absalom had returned to Jerusalem by the efforts of Joab, Joab is the commander of David's army. Joab concocted a, a story through a woman from Tekoa, if you remember, and convinced David to go and bring his son, well, not him go, but to bring his son Absalom back from Geshur to Jerusalem. And David said, he can come back, but he's got to stay out of my presence, if you remember that. And then we ended in chapter 14, where Absalom, who's I just got to add this about Absalom because it's, it's crazy. He's in Jerusalem, not allowed into his father's presence for two years. He calls on Joab, the guy that helped him get back to Jerusalem. Joab doesn't want to get involved in a conflict. Remember what, Joab, remember what Absalom does. He burns his fields down, right? His barley fields. That got his attention. That, that's, the, that's the kind of friend you, that's a good friend right there. <laughs> Absalom is finally brought into the presence of a father, his father David after two years um, but you know the story. It ended in chapter 14. Uh, there was, it was cold. It was cold. It was, it was a cold greeting. No real repentance. No real reconciliation. Chapter 14. He, yeah, he falls on his face. He calls him the king. And, and, and he kissed Absalom. But there's, there's really, there's no repentance. There's no I'm sorry. There, there's nothing there. It was, a, it was a cold meeting. But Absalom now is in the place of being in the presence of the king. Cold, yes, but he is now in Jerusalem and he's now got access to the royal palace, okay? And that's where we pick up the story. I want to lay that out for you. Very important. So what we're going to see is five movements, okay? We'll go through it quickly. Absalom conspires against his father. Absalom deceives his dad. And then the story shifts to David. I want to knock this whole chapter out in one shot. So David, we see David shepherding God's people. We see David trusting God's providence. And we see David weeping in God's presence. Those are the five movements uh, throughout this chapter that we're going to look at. So number one, Absalom's, I don't have all the verses up, but I'll have a lot of them. Absalom conspiring against his father. Now look at verse one with me at chapter 15. After this, okay, after he was in Geshur, killed Amnon, went to Geshur, came back to Jerusalem, can't be in his father's presence, finally brought into his father's presence. It's a cold meeting. It didn't really go very well. After that, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses, 50 men to run before him, and Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you from? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe of Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good. Your claims are right. But there's no one, no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, and I can hear it now, oh, if I were the judge of Israel, then every man 
with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. Verse 5. And whenever man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king, who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Now, this should be no shock, right? We, we heard the earlier description of Absalom, and you can almost see it, right? You can almost see it. He's riding the chariot, and what's going on? His hair is flowing in the wind. And he got his muscle men, no shirts, running along the chariot down the streets of Jerusalem. What a star. I should say, what a ham. I don't think they say that anymore, but that's what they used to say when I was a kid. Selfish, self-centered, right? Self-absorbed, but a man on a mission. He's a man on a mission. And what's amusing about this text, too, and I think almost every commentator points it out, you don't run chariots and horses in the streets of Jerusalem normally because of the terrain, the landscape. It's not something you see every day unless, of course, you're Absalom showing off. I can't help but remind be reminded of his father's psalm. David writes a psalm in chapter 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we, the people of God, trust in the name of the Lord our God. I mean, we could see right up front this man's character. Can't we? I mean, it's, it's predictable. When men and women pursue their own greatness, it usually includes some sort of pompous displays of trying to get some fame and fortune, privileges and and prestige. You know, they always want to be in the limelight. Do you realize that Absalom's actions are antithetical to the gospel, are are in contrast to the gospel? A, A radically different understanding of what God says about greatness, life, Jesus Christ teaches us a radically different understanding of greatness when he said, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For, Luke 22. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? It is not the one who reclines, but I am among you as the one who serves. Greatness in the kingdom of God is defined by the great king, not Absalom. And the kingdom of God belongs to those who seek don't seek, belongs to those who, 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 who don't seek fame and fortune in themselves. The kingdom of God belongs to those who recognize their weakness. Jesus even said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. If you're seeking fame, seeking power, seeking prestige, want to be in the limelight, it's antithetical to the gospel that is received through weakness. Through humility. Absalom obviously didn't get the memo of the gospel. In Absalom, we see this worldly ambition pitted against the kingdom of David. The two of them. Now, I realize that uh, the kingdom of David is weakening now. We're going to see that in this story. But by God's grace, as I said, it will continue. So here he is riding these chariots. And next we see, what is he doing? He's working the crowd. (laughs) He gets up right and early before anybody and he gets to the gate. 
where the elders would normally meet. It would be the place where people come in from other tribes within Israel to get to the king, just like the woman of Tekoa did on the last uh, time we met. And they would get their claims heard. They would get judicial satisfaction. And Absalom here is running interference with different folks. <laughs> and, and he tells, look at verse 4, Oh, if I were judge. If I were judge, you would get real justice. Now, the word justice is interesting. It means if I were judge, you, after I heard your case, you would, you would get my favor. In other words, I would vote, I would decide in your favor. So he's promising everyone, listen, you, you have a legitimate claim. And you know what? If I would judge, you'd get righteousness. You, you, would, you would get your satisfaction is what he's saying. What a promise, right? But he says, you know, the, the problem is the king. There's nobody here to hear your case. The government is, 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 is not working for you. He care, you know, the king doesn't care, but boy, if I was king. And then like a true politician, shaking everybody's hands, he's kissing all the babies. <laughs> Some politicians are, are wonderful, so I don't want to throw everybody in that boat. But here he is at the gate. And verse 6, look, Absalom stole the hearts. Everyone's going for it. And the word heart here is not just an emotional uh, agreement, right? So the word heart is he, he's, uh, he's deceiving them. He is stealing their, their emotions. He is stealing their affections. He is convincing them in their minds. That's what that word means. And Jesus taught us to be, to be careful about those who, who, who show themselves flashy, Luke 20, beware of the scribes who, who, who like to walk around in long robes. You know, you could see them a mile away. They love greetings in the marketplace. They love the limelight. They love the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the feast. The problem is, family, that sometimes we too get caught up in the external. We have to be careful. We have to be very careful that we do not get caught up Jesus said, Let, you know, it should not be among you. Don't, don't be that flashy guy. Don't, don't, be that, don't be that one that wants to take the limelight. Be the one that serves. Before we go on, I, got, I had to ask the, the, the text. I'm looking at reading this text. I'm studying the text, and I have to say, where is David? You mean David doesn't know this guy's riding chariots up and down the streets of Jerusalem? You know, David doesn't know. No one told him that he's by the gate turning everybody away, wishing he was himself the judge? Nobody? Somebody had to tell him. Remember we said last week, sometimes the temptation is not just to rebel, but apathy and indecision. That's what we see going on. Absalom conspires against his dad. Look, Absalom deceives his father. Verse 7. At the end of how many? Four years. Absalom said to the king, not to his dad, I still find that kind of, but to the king. Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant, not your son, your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Gesher, remember, in Aram, saying, this is his vow, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. Then the king said to Absalom, to him, go in peace. So he rose and he went to Hebron, verse 10. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet and say, Absalom is king at Hebron. 
With Absalom went 200 men from Israel, from Jerusalem, and were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. It's interesting. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from the city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew stronger, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Absalom was not a humble man, but I'll tell you what, he was a patient man. After four years, four years of conspiring, building up his little army, building up a a fanfare, building up himself in the eyes of the people, Absalom is ready to make his move. But Absalom needed a plan. And what better plan should Absalom do in the city of Jerusalem, where all the religious people are? The best plan is a religious plan. Oh, yeah, I just remembered. Four years ago, I made this vow I had forgotten for four years. (laughs) I need to go back to Hebron. That's where David was claimed king first. It's where Absalom was born. I need to go back because I made this promise, and I need to keep my vow. I, I, I finally remember that. If I ever come back to Jerusalem, Lord, I'm going to make this vow. So David gives him permission, and, and he leaves. And look what David says to him, verse 9, go in peace. I believe it's the last thing he will say to Absalom. Go in peace. And the bitter irony in all this is, peace is the Hebrew word for shalom. Peace is not what he's got in mind. In fact, what he wants to do is prepare to go to war against his father. And the irony gets deeper when we remember that the word or the name Absalom means father is peace. He's in the city having this conversation with his father who says go in peace in the city of Jerusalem, which means city of peace. So he leaves. He takes 200 men with him. They have no idea what's going on. He says when the the trumpet blows, we don't have any record of that. There's a signal to declare him king. And notice something very important. Absalom was, had managed to recruit Ahithophel. That's David's counselor. That's a major blow to David. That was his confidant. That was his, that was his, his, his man. Absalom is not, only a good, uh, is not only patient, he's a good planner. If you remember, he plotted two years to kill his brother Amnon. He waited and he pulled the wool over his father's eyes like, hey, I'm going to the sheep shears. Uh, why don't you send your guys with me? Send your children with me. Let's all go. No, no, David's like, no, no. He's like, yeah, 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 we'll go. All right, go ahead, take him. Two years. Pulls the wool over his father's eyes and he murders Abner. And he's doing the same thing here. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I had a vow. Can I, can I go? You know, <laughs> as hard as this is, first of all, Ahithophel, they say, I think most commentators agree that it's Bathsheba's grandfather. And you know, sometimes the people who can hurt you the most are the people who are the closest to you. And everybody said amen, I know. And it works, look, verse 12. And the conspiracy grew and the people with Absalom kept increasing. The plot to dispose of the king, to take the throne is working. He's leading this, this treasonous plot against the kingdom of David. Now, Absalom, just for the record, Absalom is the next in line to the kingdom. Absalom is the firstborn, especially in the Jewish culture, right? So he is now the eldest son of, of David. Is there anything wrong 
with Absalom wanting to be king, looking forward to be king, expecting to be king. I mean, he's the prince. He's the the royal figure. Uh, To some degree, probably not. The problem of Absalom's ambition was not uh, ambition was not his desire to be king someday, but his other utter failure to acknowledge that David is God's anointed one for the moment. That David is God's uh, appointment as made appointment as king. God's will for Israel is for David to be king. God had made him king, and sometimes the principle here: sometimes what we want, what we desire. Maybe it's not bad, but getting it the wrong way and, 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 and the wrong reasons and the wrong motives could be disastrous. Absalom wanted to make his own name great. He was, he was not interested in making God's name great, making God's name known, receiving, giving God all the glory. Absalom's ambition was to build his own kingdom, not God's kingdom. And, and, and his excuse, you can see it from the text, he's not really doing a good job. He's really not doing a good job. He's not administering justice. He's, he's not meeting the people at the gate. And sometimes, family, we have to be careful. Let me just say that. We have to be careful because sometimes there are people around us that may not be doing a great job. And then we what? We launch into some conspiring of our own. Right? Man, it really is. They only just did their job better. Maybe I can get their job. You know what I mean? That kind of stuff. But that kind of thinking, James tells us, is not from God. James 3 says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousness and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be a disorder of every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Listen, despite David's faults, David is still king. He is still God's anointed, as I said. However, Absalom is antithetical to that. He, he's got his finger in the face of God. He, he, he wants his own plan. He's not interested in what God wants. He's only interested in what he wants. And you know what he does? He does it very well. He uses people at that point as objects. And that's what happens. We use people as objects when they get in our way. When we have wrong ambitions or, we, or, we, or, we, or we're, we're conning or we're deceiving and we want what we want, we want our kingdom to flourish, we will use people as objects. People at work. Do we, do we honestly treat people no matter what, they, what kind of job they do as image bearers of God, that God loves them? Do, do we treat them with respect, dignity, treating them as, as God would want us to treat them? Even our own kids, we've got to be careful. What, 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 are, we, are we disciplining them? Are we raising our, what are we doing with our, with our children? Are we doing it so that through their achievements we can get a pat on the back or get some sort of accolades from other people? We have to be careful. We want God to get the glory. In your own school, right? Classmates become objects so you can get in certain crowds. We've got to be careful. We want to give God the glory. We want to walk with Jesus. We want to walk humbly before God, pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, giving God glory. That's how we want to walk. That's not what he's doing here. 
Henry Nauman, he's in his book, In the Name of Jesus, Reflection on Christian Leadership, he says this, it seems easier to be God than to love God. <laughs> easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life, O-W-N, own life, than to love life. And why do we do that? Because we want our kingdom to flourish. Look at verse 6 before we move on. Look at verse 6. He stole what? The hearts, the minds, the affection of Israel. Ultimately, who does mankind, men and women, children included, who's the one whose hearts and minds and affections belong to? In the context, David, we get that. But David's, David's pointing everyone to his greater king. It, it is God alone that should capture and have the final foundational reality of our life. He should capture our hearts with the gospel. We reign, rest in him upon that foundation. And I just want to remind everybody, as I remind myself, we ought to trophy God's greatness, God's love, God's glory, making his great name, his name great through generosity, through love and compassion and, 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 and gospel t- uh, intentionality. That's, that's, what, that's what Absalom is not doing. And then in verse 13, this message comes to David. Absalom is in Hebron, getting his crew together. And the message comes to David, verse 13. The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. In verse 17. And the king went out, all the people after him, and they, they halted at the last house. And all the servants passed by, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the 600 Gittites, a lot of tights, who had followed him from Gath, passed on before the king. Now, I, I have to admit something to y'all. When I read that, I thought, first thing I thought was, are you kidding me? David, step up, man. Fight like a man, right? I mean, wouldn't you rather take a beating than run from a fight? Well, the answer is no. <laughs> Especially when you're the leader and all these people are going to get wiped out because of your hard-headedness or my hard-headedness, Right? I think it's the first time David actually has to flee in this way. His analysis is correct. You better get out of there. David fleeing from Jerusalem is, is enormously significant. I mean, what, what, what's going to become of him? He, he's leaving. What about the kingdom? But I think what David is doing is David is, is, is shepherding at this point. I really believe that. David is caring for. David is shepherding. David is protecting his flock. Let's get out of here. You don't know what's going to happen. It doesn't look good. Can you feel what's going on? David is running for his life. There's some loyal servants, verse 15. Whatever you do, we'll do with you. But the weight of the kingdom, the weight of the, of the kingship is, crum, you know, is, is crumbling down around David. What, what is God doing? How am I going to get out of this mess? Am I really going to go down like this with my son coming after me? 
Ralph Davis in his commentary said, this must have been one of the darkest moments in David's life. It's his son. For his humiliation did not come at the hands of great Philistine kings or outstanding monarchs from Egypt, but from his own son, whom he had restored to royal favor, end quote. What is so interesting, family, if you, if you, if you have your Bibles, you can turn here real quickly with me. Psalm 3, listen to Psalm, if you don't have it, I'm going to read it to you, Psalm 3. A Psalm of David, Psalm 3, a Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son, O Lord, how many are my foes? Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God's Selah. Reflect. David is very, very low. Verse 19. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why do you also go? Go back, stay with the king. You're a foreigner. You came here in exile from your house. You came only yesterday. And shall I today make you wander about with me since I go? I don't know where I'm going. Go back, take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show chesed, steadfast love and faithfulness to you. I mean, that says a lot about David, doesn't it? You got these foreigners coming into the city and now they're saying, I'm with you. But Ittai answered the king as the Lord lives. As my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether death or life, there also your servant will be. And David said to Ittai, Ittai, then go pass on. So Ittai, the Gittite, it sounds like Gazentite. I don't know, my, my German friend here, it means health, but maybe, maybe I don't know, he was sneezing, but he passed on all the way and the little ones were with him, okay? It's not your fight, Ittai, the Gittite. It's not your fight. Don't come with me. I'm not sure where I'm going. And then this man makes this oath with David. Do, do, do you see what, the, what God's doing? God is encouraging David, I think. Right? God, I think God is encouraging David. He brings a foreigner, a, a man in his family who just shows up and he looks at him and says, I'm with you, man. I, I'm with you. Life or death, I'm with you. Family, an encouragement can be such a positive, good thing especially when you're in a mess, right? And, and do, do you know that encouragement is listed in the spiritual gifts? So there are people here right now in this room that have the spiritual gift of encouragement. Now, we define spiritual gifts. It's all for God's glory, and they're used to build up the body, the work of the ministry, and the advancement of the kingdom. And if you have that spiritual gift of encouragement, you need to exercise that gift. Because people need encouragement. And, and I think that's what Ittai is doing. I think he, 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 he sees and he's, he comes alongside David. In fact, Derek Thomas, Dr. Derek Thomas says this. I think Ittai, the Gittai, saw something of David. He saw something of grace. He saw something of Christ. He saw something of the gospel. And he saw something of truth. And he said, whatever it is, whatever it is you got, I'm willing to, to lay down my life for it. And you know, a Hittite's not a politician, right? I mean, he would have just stayed in Jerusalem. I mean, an outgoing king, all his family, and, and income, Absalom's coming. I might as well, maybe I can get along with this guy, the next guy, and, and maybe we can, we can, you know, work something out. But no, he goes with David. And, and he's, just, he's just encouraging, and, and he's there with David. Verse 23, sad 
This guy Hittite's like Barnabas, you know, man of encouragement. Verse 23. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron and the people passed on toward the wilderness. Off they go, out of Jerusalem into exile. David the great shepherd leading his flock into safety and this ironic twist. (laughs) Absalom was forced to flee Jerusalem from David when he killed Amnon. Now David is forced to flee because of Absalom wants to kill him in Jerusalem. But he's not leaving. I I, I think David leaves the ten concubines and that was kind of like, I don't know what God's going to do. You stay here. I'm coming back. And we see David now trusting God's providence. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with the other uh, Levites, bringing, look what they brought, the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they sat down in the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back. He will let me see both it and his dwelling place. I'll see the ark again. I'll see the dwelling place. That's my hope. Verse 26. But if he says, I have no more pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him, God, do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your sons. Amaz and, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. You go back. So Zodak, Zadok, Abiathar carried the ark back to Jerusalem and remained there. I, I love this. You know what David's not doing? David is not calling on or, or playing the religious card. If you remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 4 through 6, God's people refused to hear the word of God. They refused the face of God. And rather than... Rather than seek God, what'd they do? They called on the Ark of the Covenant like a rabbit's foot. I mean, it was a while ago, but that's what happened when they were fighting the Philistines. And they're like, we need the Ark. Bring it out. We'll, we'll just put it. And what happened? The Philistines captured the Ark, if you remember. Now, David understood the significance of the, of the Ark. He understands what it represents. He gets that. He said, I, I dwell in a, a house of cedar, and there is the Ark of the Covenant dwelling in tents. Remember that. But he knows, David knows, the ark belongs in the city of God. Go back, put it back. It's not some magical box. It's to represent. It is is to show forth the presence of God in the nation. This is really important. David knows that his exclusive right to the throne is not dependent upon him. It's not dependent upon him. God himself will choose whom God wants to reign over his people. And that is a really good lesson, a hard lesson, but a good lesson to learn, particularly in ministry, right? I'm sorry to tell you this. You're replaceable. I'm replaceable. But David is is trusting God. David is trusting in his good providence. David is trusting in in his, his his sovereignty. And again, I'm going to go back to Psalm 3, if you still have that open. So he's praying there against me, and then verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. This is while this is going on. You're a shield about me. (laughs) My glory and the lifter of my head, I cried aloud to you, O Lord, and you answered me from your holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke up again, for the Lord sustained me. 
Psalm 3, verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around me. Verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you you strike the enemies on the cheek. You, You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. You see what David's doing? David's trusting the Lord. And that's why he could stay with confidence. If the Lord brings me back and I see the ark, I see the place, praise God. If he doesn't, he's done with me, praise God. No matter how the whole thing shakes out, I'm trusting in the salvation of our God. And who does that sound like? Not the name it and claim it. You've got a big bank account, health and wealth and prosperity for you every day of your life. No. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like Job. After losing everything, naked I come from my mother's womb, naked I return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like three Jewish boys who refused to bow down in idolatry and worship the king of Babylon, Radshak and Benny, if you watch that show. All right, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, they say, our God we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. He is, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, you need to know O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Either way, trusting in God. No gimmicks, no superstition, no rabbit foot religion, no twisting the arm of God. I claim it. I just, you have to do it now. Yeah, okay. Put on a helmet. That's what I tell you to do, right? This is not a pathetic acquiescing of faith. It's, it's a rigorous submission to God. That's what David is doing. He's trusting in his sovereignty. Here's the, this, this unhindered liberty of faith. He's trusting in the Lord. And he tells him, go back. Bring the ark back. David is suffering. David is, is hurting. David is weeping. David is exiting Jerusalem. But David slept at night. Isn't that cool? Psalm 3 again, verse 5. I lay down and slept. I awoke again for the Lord sustained me. I'm going to sleep. Wake me up in the morning. I know there's civil war all around me. I know I'm being torn from Jerusalem. I know my son is trying to kill me. I know the whole thing is upside down, but wake me in the morning. I'm going to sleep right now. That's pretty powerful. David has done some horrible things, but David knows that God said he will never leave him forsaken. David knows there's forgiveness. That's the gospel, family. That's the gospel. No matter how badly you may have failed, there's forgiveness with God. There is hope that God is for you, seeking his glory and your good if you belong to Jesus. Because it's not about what you do, it's about what Christ has already done. No matter what suffering you may be going through. And finally, we come to verse 30. David went up the ascent to the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, head covered. All the people with him had covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel, he finally finds out, is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said this. Now, we, now David prays. He hasn't prayed in a long time. Please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. He's heading out of Jerusalem. He's up the Kindred Valley. He's ascending the Mount of Olives. He's weeping. They're weeping as he's going. I just got a a quick picture. So there's Jerusalem. Oh, you really can't see that. But the Kindred Valley is is here and it's outside of Jerusalem. He's headed outside of Jerusalem. Jesus had Judas. (laughs) David has Ahithophel, right? You got to have one person in your life turning their back on you, right? I mean, it's just this part of life. Now he's praying. Now he's praying. David's weeping, David's broken, and David is praying. And some of us would say, honestly, it's about time. And then we'd be honest with ourselves and go, yeah, that happens to me too. Usually when I'm suffering like that, I'm, I'm, I'm praying. I'm praying a lot. 
I didn't pray that much yesterday or the day before because everything was great. But now things are really bad, and I'm praying a storm, right? Let's be honest. Suffering drops us that way. Verse 32, to close. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, Hushai, I love these names, the Archite, a lot of ites, I don't, I, anyway. Come to meet us, meet him with his coat torn, dirt on his head, he's mourning as well. David said to him, if you go on with me, you'll be a burden. But if you return to the city, tell Absalom, I'll be your servant, O king. I've been your father's servant, which was David. This is David talking to him. And now I'll be your servant. Then you, Hashai, will defeat for me the council of Ahithophel. Or not Zodak, the Abiathar, the priest there. So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok, tell it to Abiathar, the priest. And behold, their sons are with them too. Get their names. And then they'll send me word. Verse 35, 36. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. David recognizes, you got to see this. David recognizes that, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel bad. And oh, why don't you go back? Why don't you go back? You, you might be just the guy to help this, this traitor against me. No, no long prayers. He's just like, I'm with you. Another man of encouragement, right? Another man of grace saying, be loyal to me, but go back into the city. And what's so cool about that is he prays, and then they'll go, hmm, let me just wait and see what God's going to do. He prays for help with Ahithophel, and then asks his friend to go back to the city and spy on him. The principle is clear. The, he's asking the Lord, Lord to cause something to happen, and then he works to make that part happen. It's all part of the sovereignty of God. Right? It doesn't undermine human responsibility and initiative. Quite the opposite. David worked to accomplish precisely what he asked the Lord to do. Verse 37. And Hisha, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was what? Entering Jerusalem. Saga. Now, we're going to close this way. Verse 23, the only reference to the book Kidron, the only reference to that brook in all of the New Testament is found in John chapter 18, where we read that Jesus and his disciples were crossing the book, the brook of Kidron, a clear and deliberate connection between David's departure from Jerusalem and Jesus' departure from Jerusalem. So as we see David's darkest day, we are reminded of Jesus. We're reminded of the gospel where, where Jesus, the, the greater and ultimate son of David, suffering and departs, anticipating looking back to David's departure as well. But unlike David, Jesus is leaving, departing, suffering as he goes, not because he committed sin, but because of your sin and my sin. No matter how dark this day is for David, it points to the ultimate darkness, the ultimate darkest day of the world in John 18. It was the middle of the night, probably early morning. Jesus went out with his disciples from the city of Jerusalem. Jesus crossed the brook Kidron and climbed to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. The great son of David walked, so to speak, in David's footsteps and likewise was rejected by his own people. The gloomy and treacherous clouds that hung over Jesus was gathering and getting darker every day. 
And just like David, he was rejected in Jerusalem, betrayed by a friend, left the city, crossed the brook Kidron, went to the Mount of Olives and prayed. And, and there is where his betrayers found him. And in a short time, he'd be denied, abused, mocked, and condemned to death. Every gospel account talks about this, where he's on this mountain and he's praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not my will, but your will. Jesus told his disciples over and over he would suffer at the hands of the leaders if they had ears to hear. It was the darkest days for everyone. It was even the dark days for them when their hope was in Israel. They, Jesus, you are the, the son of David. You are the one entering into the world. You're the one that's going to overthrow the government. You're the one who's going to set up an eternal kingdom where we will reign with you in it. Devastating for them when he went to the cross. But we know that because of the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus the Christ and his resurrection from the grave, the tomb is empty, we know that our king ushered in the promised kingdom to David, the eternal kingdom of God. And it came not through wanting power, but through weakness, suffering, rejection, and hatred. Our king, Jesus, did not demand the throne seeking power, but gave up his life and was crucified on a cross. And make no mistake, he's coming back. And when he comes back with all authority and supremacy, he will establish his perfect, righteous, eternal, promised kingdom. Amen. And when you see family, listen, when you see all that Christ has done, if you see all that Christ gave up, when you see all that Christ has done for you, you can truly live for his glory and for his kingdom. The gospel, the king of the kingdom of God, belongs not to those who seek fame and fortune, power, privilege, and prestige for themselves, but those who admit their weaknesses and receive his grace. Family, stop trying to build your own kingdom. I say this to you. I say this to me. Submit to King Jesus, the King of Kings. Let's evaluate, let's evaluate our lives. Let's evaluate our ambitions. Let's evaluate our affections. And let's rest upon the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who came not in power but came in weakness and went to the cross for your sins and then rose from the dead and will return in power with all authority. Father, I, I, I don't think any, anybody I, I, in all of life, in all of history, could possibly come up with a story like this. The story of the gospel how you came down to us, took on flesh and bones, lived a perfect life, had every right and authority to destroy all of us, but in your grace, mercy, and love, you laid down your life for us. Thank you, Jesus, for that salvation. And Father, as we sing, all I have is Christ, we pray that by your Spirit we would Relinquish control. Stop trying to build our kingdom. Stop trying to justify ourselves. Father, rest in your good providence, your love and mercy toward us. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.